Okay, everybody, welcome. It is lovely to see you all again. And <coughs> uh, I have to apologise first up that I had intended to produce a lovely, glitzy, glossy handout for you all again. And events, dear boy, events, as some famous old British politician said, <laughs> overtook. So I'm sorry about that. So you'll have to concentrate and pay attention, like you always do. Of course, right. So um, uh, we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump uh, straight in. You'll need your Bibles, and you'll need a pen if you have paper to write on. And I'm, like I said, I'm sorry I don't have anything given to you. Bear with me a second. All right, so let's pray, and then we'll get started. Merciful and gracious Father, please pity us, your beloved people, uh, your blind and helpless people, but for your grace and the illumination of your spirit. Help us, we pray, to see these glorious things in your law which you have placed before us, that we may grasp with greater depth and clarity the wonderful things that you've placed in your word and see how they unfold through the ages to depict a picture of history that glorifies you and promises great good to us. And we pray you'd sharpen our minds and eyes and help us to help one another as we search the riches of your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are reflecting on the study of eschatology, which, as you know by now, is the study of the Christian doctrine of the last things. Come on. All of history. Eschatology is the study of all of human history, and therefore the right approach to the study of eschatology is to ask ourselves the question, well, what's God doing in the whole of history? And we've been doing that. So I want to begin to get today with a recap of where we've come from, and then I'm going to explain where we're going today. And today we're going to run headlong into and hopefully drive a 15-ton truck straight over one of the greatest misunderstandings about Christian eschatology and about the Bible as a whole. Uh, when we get to the main subject for today, which is the so-called law, quote-unquote, of Moses. This is the next era of history we're going to be looking at. But before we get to that, let me just remind you. So one of the things we uh, did first up in the first session in this series was to consider that history itself is a revelation of the character of God. All the things he's made, all of the things that he does reflect him. And so you could actually infer from what we know about God in Scripture to what we expect to see in history. That's the first step. The second step was to look at the things that God had made. And one of the really intriguing things about the creation narrative in Genesis 1 is how the symbolism embedded in them is picked up elsewhere in Scripture to depict a glorious future, a, a wonderful shape for history. So that was the second session. And then what we did was to start on um, what you might call human history, I suppose, with, the, with Adam and the formal study of what theologians sometimes call covenant theology. And covenant theology is the, the discipline of studying the unfolding relationship or covenant 
or covenants, if you prefer, between God and his people through history. And so uh, all of God's relationships with people take the form of a covenant, which is a a relationship with a well-defined structure built into it, with promises made by one or both parties, with specific expectations that are set down that must be met by one or both parties, uh, often ratified in formal rituals which serve to symbolise the blessings for keeping the covenant or the curses for breaking it and so on. And so in the days of Adam and then Noah and then Abraham, what we've seen is there is this unfolding, developing, single story where God begins with the first man and his wife, Adam, and uh, he sets before him the glorious task of, says before them, pardon me, the glorious task of filling the earth and subduing it. And he's made them in his image to bear his character, to be representatives of him in the world, to rule in the way that he would rule over all the created order. And then after the catastrophe of the fall, God doesn't sort of abandon everything and think, well, let's just start again. What he actually does is to... Uh, act in judgment in the days of the flood and then restart the program not with a completely different plan but with the same plan Uh, but developed it's transformed in some ways and you remember in the days of Noah we saw how God acted graciously to sinful people Um, we saw how God's uh, plan to redeem the world reinstated the goals of the original creation. Very important that Genesis 9 echoes Genesis 1. So God hasn't left behind Genesis 1. It's this developing relationship, just as parents' relationships with their children develop through time, so God's relationships with his people develop through time. We saw other features of this unfolding pattern where God didn't just say, well, here's Noah, I'll take him, but his wife and his three sons and their wives. And so God's plan for redemption, his grace extends to families, somehow you're getting the seeds of what we see later in much clearer form. We saw after the flood, in the days of Noah in Genesis 9, God promised never again to destroy the whole world with a flood, but to preserve human society so that people can be saved. That's picked up in 2 Peter 3. And he gave the covenant sign, which remember was a sign for him, not really for us, He says, when I see the bow, when I see the rainbow, I will remember. And that word to remember, we're going to come up against that, not against that, we're going to run into it again uh, in Exodus 2, where God remembers. For God to remember is for him to call to mind and to act upon his promises. So when he sees the rainbow, he's going to call to mind and act upon his commitment never to destroy the world in the waters of a flood again. And so 2 Peter 3, 9, God is patient not wanting anybody to perish, but all to come to repentance. Then the story rolls on, and of course it goes bad again. Uh, Noah's descendants, many of them are very wicked men. And you get to Genesis 11, and it's all gone terrible, and the arrogant attempt of humanity to unite against God and to presume to be able to reach up to him. And God frustrates that. 
And you might think, well, maybe he's going to destroy all humanity again in a great act of judgment and then start again with one man and his family, like in the days of Noah, but he doesn't. He has something different. He plants a little seed. One man, Abraham, within the rest of humanity and promises this man many descendants and indeed uh, nations will come to him. In the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the account of Abraham. And you remember There's a threefold promise that God makes to Abraham. Some of my Bible and theology students at the back there, Jack Claghorn. What's the threefold promise that God makes to Abraham in Genesis 12? Do you remember? Yeah, very good. Land, blessing, and people. God promises to give Abraham a land in which to live. He promises to give him many descendants. And then later in Genesis, um, uh, not just his own biological descendants, but people from other nations. And he promises to bless and be present with his people. And is that just for Abraham and his family? No, it's not, right? It's for the whole world, yeah? So land, people, blessing for the whole world. And it's no exaggeration to say that the initial version of that promise in Genesis 12 sets the agenda for the whole of the rest of the Bible. And certainly the rest of the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, is the initial fulfillment of that promise. Now, in that Uh, unfolding conversation or series of conversations God has with Abraham. Remember, there's a bunch of other features of this relationship that are highlighted. So, for example, Genesis 15. You know, I'm I'm getting old and Eliezer of Damascus is going to inherit everything, God. What happened to your promise of many descendants? He's 80-something years old. And God says, well, you've got to trust me. Against the odds, you're going to have to trust me. Even when everything looks like it couldn't possibly work out, you're going to have to trust me. And so Abraham becomes a paradigm of faith, where faith is understood as believing what God said, even when the only reason you'd have for believing it is because God says so. He hoped against hope, the New Testament says. And faith is like that. Sometimes we just have to take God at his word, even when it's just, this looks crazy, Lord. Genesis 15. Uh, You also remember Genesis 15, you've got another covenant ritual, the animals torn in two and God kind of going through between the pieces, right? Genesis 15 affirms the promise to many nations. Abraham becomes Abraham, father of many. And again there, picking up from what you might have guessed in the days of Adam, and you sort of were pretty sure of in the days of Noah, that whole families will be involved in God's program of redemption. Genesis 17, 7 and 8 make it explicit. Um, I will be God to you and to your offspring after you. Can you see? So what's happening is, I think of it as like, um, (laughs) this illustration doesn't work in Texas. In England, you can talk about people making a snowball and rolling it down a snowy hill. And as you roll it down, the snowball gets bigger. Does that resonate at all? Has anybody ever seen snow in Texas? We actually do see kind of ice, don't we? Um, But if you just imagine for a second... And if you've never played in the snow, right, you've got to just trust me on this one. Um, if you live in a, a country that has wet snow, right, that you can make snowballs out of and snowmen out of, then you can roll all the snowball, snow up into a little ball this big, and then you can start to push it along the ground. This is how kids make big, big snowmen. You push it, and as the ball rolls, it picks up all the snow that's on the ground, and the ball gets bigger and bigger and bigger. This is what's happening with the Bible. This snowball is trundling along downhill through the pages of scripture and as it goes it's accumulating all the things that it rolls through 
And we see in this growing snowball, we've seen this growing picture of God's revelation, the accumulated goodness of all the things that have gone before. God is building a picture of what humanity is going to be like when it grows up in Christ. We're still in the infancy stage. When the full-grown man, Jesus, comes, what's it going to be like? And all these things give us indications of that. Um, Also in Genesis 17, if you decide that the sign can safely be forgotten, well, you've broken the covenant. And remember last week I talked about how the sign and the covenant are so identified that to omit or neglect the sign of the covenant is to abandon the relationship. So that's going to have relevance for covenant signs later down the road. And then finally, Genesis 22. um, (laughs) Go to a mountain on which in a few hundred years' time a temple is going to be built by King Solomon and sacrifice your son there. I mean... You see what God is doing? He is creating a, um, not just a bunch of foretastes, but he's building a cumulative story which is going somewhere. And it's like, a, it's like the best of detective stories, you know? When you read it through the first time, you don't know what, really what you're doing, what's going on. But by the time you get to the end and you sort of know what happens in the last chapter, and then you go back and read it again, you see all the hints of where you're going. And what we're really doing here is, I can't resist skittering backwards and forwards with you to show you what the final chapter, or hint at least, about what the final chapter picks up from those earlier episodes. And so if if you were thinking about baptism when I mentioned the covenant sign in the days of Abraham, Genesis 17, yeah, you're not far wrong. If you were thinking about God's promises to his children when I mentioned Genesis 17, 7 and 8, yeah, you're not far wrong. If you're thinking about um, the vast extent of the church now, even today across the world, when I talked about God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, yeah, you're not far. What you're doing is you're starting to connect page 12 with page 476, which is what we ought to be doing. Because it's how you, that's how you do history. You don't just jump in at page 476. Yeah? So that's what we're doing. Now let me pause. Take a deep breath. Any questions? Wonderful. I didn't think there would be, right? But I wanted to kind of scoop all that stuff up and show you where we're going. Because where we're going next is the next installment of the narrative of God's dealings with his people. Under the leadership of the meekest man in all the earth, um, the greatest of the prophets, arguably, uh, a priest by the name of Moses, or a, a man from a priestly tribe by the name of Moses. So the Abraham narrative is all contained in the book of Genesis. And we know, because I've already kind of given you the hint about where, well, I've told you with Abraham, um, the promises to Abraham are then fulfilled in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then in Joshua, right? But... During that process, a whole series of new elements in God's relationship with his people are introduced under the leadership of Moses. And in order to pick up the narrative, we've just got to remember what happens at the end of the book of Genesis and then what happens as we take a step forward into the book of Exodus. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. 
And let's just remind ourselves what happened. So basically, Genesis, it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 sons of Jacob, who don't get on well. Joseph is the second youngest and is a bit of a, I had a dream and you were all bowing down to me. (laughs) Great. (laughs) So they decided to get rid of him. They relented from killing him because Reuben said, let's not kill him. Um, Ended up selling him as a slave. He got taken to Egypt, which turned out to be mighty handy later on because there was a famine in the land where the other 10, actually 11 by then, brothers, Benjamin having been born, were living. So they had to go down to Egypt to get food. Meanwhile, Joseph had risen from being in prison in uh, Egypt to being prime minister, basically, and was the guy responsible for securing the food supply for the entire nation. And so he recognized them. They didn't recognize him. Uh, And one thing led to another. He was able to provide food for his um, family. And so by the end of the book of Genesis, all of the sons of Abraham, or the offspring of Abraham, are growing in number. There's about 70. So that first bit of the promise looks like it's moving in the right direction. Uh, The Lord is clearly blessing them, albeit in some limited ways. I mean, they're still alive. The Lord was with Joseph and he prospered, Genesis tells us. But they're not in the right place, right? If you think about what Jack said about land, people, blessing, you're on the way to the people thing working out. But land, they're in Egypt. That's not the promised land. So how are they going to get there? And so we turn to the book of Exodus. And what we discover, Exodus 1 verse 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, yada, 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 70 persons in all. Joseph died, and his brothers and that generation all died. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. Isn't that wonderful? Like, you just put a little tentative tick next to the people bit of the promise at the end of Genesis, or well, now you can double underline that check mark and put a big circle around it and say, yeah, that's done. We've now got an exceedingly, multi, uh, exceedingly great multitude of people. God has blessed his, his children in that way. But then Gen- Exodus 1 verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who didn't know Joseph. And rather than delighting in this great multitude of different people in his country and investigating his own history to discover how much he owed them, he said, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And what you discover for the first time, God's purposes are being opposed, not from within, but from without. Just think about it for a second. In Genesis, you've got plenty of human weakness and sin standing against the fulfillment of the purposes of God. You know, fill the earth and subdue it. Okay, so we have two children and the first one kills the second one. It's not going great. Um, Fill the earth and subdue it, and God chooses Abraham, and he can't have children. His wife is barren. 
Same with Isaac. You know, all these problems you're running into, but they're all problems from within. They're problems of human weakness and human sin. And now for the first time, you discover that God's plan to multiply his people, to move them to their own land and to bless them is going to be opposed from without. And the opposition takes the form of a tyrant king, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, just think about what that tells you for a second. Don't you, you learn something profoundly significant about the progress of history from Exodus 1 verse 8 and 9. Unless this is some blip, unless this is some weird uh, accident of history, maybe what's going to happen from now on is that the people of God are going to face opposition from outside, even as they strive to enjoy the fulfillment of God's promises to them. That's what happens. So you know what happens in Exodus chapter 1. Um, in Exodus chapter 1, uh, initially, Pharaoh makes them work as slaves, um, and then they continue to multiply. And um, so he uh, says to, he gets the two Hebrew midwives together, and he says... Um, These two probably, by the way, are like the leading coordinators of the Hebrew midwives. It's not likely that a massively multiplying nation could have two midwives. These are kind of the the major general midwives. What do you call it in a hospital? What's a senior nurse called? Uh, A ward sister or something. There's something like that. Shifra and Pua. He says, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. Um... It's an attempt at genocide, wipe them out within a generation and assimilate them into Israel. So we'll marry the girls, that's fine, quite pretty. But we don't want the guys around, we want to wipe out this line. Uh, But the Hebrew midwives feared God, which is generally a good idea. And they didn't do as the king of Egypt commanded, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, they're vigorous. <laughs> Which is just the most hilariously insulting thing to say. They don't really even need a midwife, they give birth before we can get there. Um, so God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. You see, God's purposes prevail. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. The likelihood is that the midwives were women either who couldn't have children themselves or weren't married or who had been married and were past childbearing age. That's why you'd become a midwife. You wouldn't become a midwife if you were young enough to have children of your own. You'd be too busy. So um, these women who, for whatever reason, couldn't have children, the Lord sort of laughs. You know, can't have kids? Yeah, well, we can fix that. I've been doing it all the way through Genesis. Why stop now? You know? um, so he gave them families of their own. And it's just fascinating, isn't it? How does the Lord defeat the the most powerful man in the world? Um, Two Hebrew midwives who feared God more than they feared man. And so what does Jesus say? You're completely unsurprised now to hear our Lord saying, don't fear those who can only kill the body. Fear the one who has power to cast body and soul into hell. Yeah, fear him. You should be afraid. But you shouldn't be afraid of him, you should be afraid of him. Can you see what you're seeing? You're seeing a 
The technical term is a typological anticipation of, of the future. You're seeing patterns in history. You're learning about how God's relationship with his people is going to proceed and how God's purposes are going to be victorious. So if this is what you know about history, how are you expecting victory to be won at other times in history? You're, you're probably expecting um, weak and insignificant people to shame powerful pagan leaders. You might be expecting women, especially women who can't have children, to play a significant part in overcoming God's purpose, in fulfilling God's purposes, and even in overcoming his enemies. And then you just cast your mind forward through the scriptures and you see it again and again and again and again. Just we'll look at the story of the narrative of Ruth um, later on today if we have a chance, because that fits into the Moses story actually really well. But just think of the significant Think of the women who succeed in fulfilling God's purposes when the men fail. Deborah in Judges chapter 4 and Jael in Judges chapter 4. So Deborah emerges as a leader when all the men who should be leading the nation have failed. Jael emerges as a leader within her family when her husband has apostatized. You go and read Judges chapter 4, it's clear that he had been uh, kind of, he had sided with the Hebrews previously, but he'd gone back to to be a, become a Canaanite. And his wife said, "Well, I'm not having that." And so, when Sisera, the commander of the Canaanite army, came into his tent, to, into her tent to try and find refuge, he stuck a tent peg through his skull. Um, think of other women who play a decisive role in the history of the world. Hannah. Yeah, everything has gone completely sideways. Uh, at the beginning of 1 Samuel, and, and the world is saved by a childless woman again. <laughs> Can you start to see the pattern? And um, you've got a couple of quite significant childless women at the start of the Gospels, haven't you? Elizabeth and then Mary. Well, Elizabeth childless because she's too old. Um, Mary childless, well, for other reasons. But again, we can probably deal with that. And what you're learning is how God likes to do things. God will have the victory, but not by might, not by power, by my spirit. And working in the, the strangest of ways. So can you, can you start to see what happens? So, Exodus one twenty two. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, well, if I can't trust the Israelites to do the job, I'll have to do it myself. Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into, into the Nile. Ah, <laughs> which is a bit of a problem, isn't it? And how is, how is God going to overcome this? The answer is, well, there's going to be one kid who gets cast into the Nile who is going to lead the entire nation of Israel out of Egypt, away from the tyranny of Pharaoh, through water, again, to the land that God had promised them. And he's going to be uh, a self-doubting, um, mostly feeling completely inadequate guy who's probably got a speech impediment. That's what he says. I'm, I don't know how to speak. I, I've got, 
I'm slow of speech and tongue. You might have had a lisp or something. And that's the, the narrative that we're going to unfold and see, see how the Lord works through him. Let me pause there just for one second. And let you all kind of catch up. Any questions so far? All happy? All right. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to work through the account of Moses and we're going to see the, we get to the giving of the law, quote unquote, which is really important. And we're going to just see how that fits into this overall uh, narrative and how, how God is at work in the days of Moses to continue fulfilling his, his word, work and his words to his people. So, okay, you've got to throw all the Hebrew Israelite boys into the river. Huh. Okay, Exodus 2 verse 1. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took it as, as his wife, a Levite woman. I'm going to read this. This is the Steve Jeffrey translation, okay? So, um, and you'll see why in a second. Um, the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was good, she hid him for three months, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him uh, an ark made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Did you notice anything? I deviated from the English Standard Version at one or two points. Anybody got any observations about the Steve Jeffrey translation? Yeah, Miss um, Robinson. Yeah, very good. When she saw that he was good, literally. Saw, good, took. Where have you seen that before? Go on. Creation, the creation narrative. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Saw, good, saw, good. It's the... It's the rip- repeating refrain in Genesis 1. And then at the end of Genesis 1, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And then a few verses later, he took the man and put him in the garden to work it, to serve it and keep it, literally. And serve and keep are words later used of priestly service. Now, so, saw good took in the Garden of Eden. Saw good took in Exodus 2. Why? What is that telling us about the events of Exodus 2? Daniel. Yeah, thank you, sir. It's a new creation. I want you to think about this, because you're used to reading, um, if anyone is in Christ, new creation, literally. And our translations say something like, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Yeah. 2 Corinthians 5, you're familiar with that. Whenever God wants to move from one era to the next, he recreates the world. Sometimes it looks more obvious than other times, but new creation is just what the Lord does. Genesis 1, there's water and the land emerges from underneath it as the spirit hovers over the surface of the water. Yes, remember? Genesis 9, 
there's water over everything, and the land emerges from it as the... No, it's not the spirit, is it? What is it that hovers over the surface? The ark is floating on it. The dove. And when the Spirit of God descends on Jesus in in Mark 1, he takes the form of a dove. So water, something emerging from the water. The thing that emerges from the water is is the created space in which you can live. It's It's the place for the new or renewed, let's say, creation. And so it is here. Moses is a new creation. Because what's going to happen to him? It's, it's this wonderful, ironic, poke Pharaoh in the eye. You want to throw all the Hebrew Israelite boys into the water? Okay, we can do that. Let's, let's, see, let's see if we can find an amusing way of doing it for you. This is, by the way, is, these two chapters are two of the most amusing chapters in the whole Bible. If you don't get the joke, it's because we're not, we're not really up to speed with how funny it is to have two named women defy the unnamed most powerful man in the world. That's quite humiliating for Pharaoh, king of Egypt. We know their names. We have no idea who he is. Because like, who cares? He's just king of Egypt. But Shifra and Pua let all the world know their names because they matter. And he wants all the boys to be thrown into the Nile. Okay, I think the Lord can turn that evil for good because he's been doing that all the way through Genesis as well. Let's have a go, shall we? So verse 4, um, or end of verse 3, sorry. So she put the child in this ark. That's what it says. Tevar. It's the same word used for the ark of Noah. Because the ark that floats on the water is the thing in which the people of God are preserved from the flood. That the powers of darkness and sin have wrought upon the world. And it's daubed with bitumen and pitch, which is... Well, go back and read Genesis 6, and that's exactly how you build the ark, yeah? 6 and 7, yeah? It makes it waterproof. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. So she's there with all her, the ladies who carry her makeup bags and all that kind of thing. Daughter of Pharaoh is there. And she sees the basket among the reeds and sent for the servant, servant woman and she took it. She opened it and there's this little baby. And, and she remembered her father's instruction and so she tipped the baby out into the river and let it drown. Now, like, this, this pharaoh, so powerful, this king, he can't even control his own daughter. So his own daughter defies him, takes pity on him, said, oh, it's one of the Hebrew babies. Oh, poor little thing. Yeah. And his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, now, just, you've got to follow this. Moses' sister says to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women and nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said, yeah, that's a good idea. I mean, I don't want to nurse a child myself. I can't, you know, breastfeed a child right now. You know, and um, so the girl went and thought, well, who should I get to nurse Moses? I know, <laughs> Moses' mum. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, well, take this child away and nurse him for me and I'll pay you for your time. <laughs> so just let's get this straight for a second. Um, Moses' has, Moses' mum has this child, puts it in, in an ark in the river. Then Pharaoh's daughter says, well, go get the baby out, give it back to its mother and I'll pay the mother for the child to be raised it's not exactly what Pharaoh had in mind was it Um, so the woman took the child and nursed him when the child grew up she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son now in practical terms there's a couple of things going on here first is like you couldn't really have a Hebrew boy growing up thought of 
as one of the Hebrews, he'd have to be in the palace of... Well, if he was just kind of Hebrew running around, everyone would think, well, he should be dead. Right? But um, presumably there's enough chaos in Pharaoh's court, this is the second point that things going on here, that he can be kind of safely educated at Egyptian expense, educated all, in all the wisdom and knowledge of the Egyptians. Um, Hebrews 11 says of Moses. And she named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. That's what Moses means, drawn out. So you see, there is something deeply... Well, why is it so... so I mean, at one point a minute or two ago, you all smiled because you've got, you kind of got the joke. Yeah. There's something deeply ironic in the way that God uses the weakness of the Hebrews in this situation to overturn and humiliate the power of Pharaoh. And again, I, I think we're supposed to see in this a, a picture of how God likes to do things. The Lord isn't the kind of God who wants to defeat evil in the sort of way that we would think you defeat evil, sort of by smashing it. What he'd probably do is find some subversive way of turning it against itself so that its foolishness is revealed, even when it thinks it's being really clever. So Pharaoh thinks he's being really clever to devise this cunning way of getting rid of the Hebrew boys, and therefore of the Hebrews, period. Meanwhile, from within, by his very actions, the people of God are being saved. And Pontius Pilate and the Jewish leaders who conspired against Jesus thought they were being really clever between them in different ways to get rid of this troublesome Nazarene preacher who'd just been causing all this hassle. But what the Lord does is overturn their plots from within. And the devil must have thought he'd won. I mean, literally, at the point where he's been trying to kill Jesus ever since he said, I've got an idea, come up here and just jump off and I'll give you everything you want. And Jesus didn't point out the obvious, like, if I jump off from here, I'm going to die, stupid. But he would, you know, it's a long way to fall. He was fully man. You know, if he fell over, he'd hurt his knee. Um, and so he said, no. And so the point at which the devil thinks he's won, well, how does Colossians 2 put it? Um, Jesus triumphed over him in it, and the it is the cross. You see there is a, an ironic subversiveness to the way God wins victories over his enemies. That's the first big cluster of newness that we get in the days of Moses. We've not even got to the giving of the law, quote-unquote, yet. But can you see, I've laboured this point because I want you to see, we're seeing in Exodus, to summarise where we got so far, opposition, hostility from the world. As the kingdom of God and the people of God grow, expect the world to push back and expect God to be victorious in the most amusing ways that are just ironic and they're saturated with the power of weakness and, and the kind of, you'd never think to have done it like that-ness about them. You with me? And that is built into the fabric of history. So expect history, expect the kingdom of God to be opposed, expect church growth to be opposed, expect 
people who become Christians, especially in cultures where there is a large preponderance of anti-Christian, say Muslim or secularist feeling, expect them to be opposed, but expect the Lord to use weakness to triumph over that darkness and evil. It's what we're expecting to happen. And so the Lord will use the most unlikely people. How, how, who shall we use to reach the Gentiles with the gospel? I know. What's the name of that converted Pharisee guy who used to be actually trying to stamp out the churches completely? Uh, Paul. That'll do. We'll have him. He can be the apostle to the Gentiles. Yeah. So, and everyone was terrified of him to start. They're like, well, we've heard about you. Is that you go around killing people who believe in Jesus? And now you want us to kind of welcome you into our synagogues. We're not sure this is such a good idea. The Lord just uses these remarkable and strange ways. And one of the most difficult lessons for the church to learn in every age is not to embrace the weapons of the world in fighting the Lord's battles. But to see, well, how does God do it here? Somebody who fears God is faithful, and then the Lord does amazing things. Let me pause. Any, Any questions so far or comments about that? Yeah, absolutely. Do I think the Pharaoh's daughter paying Moses' mother is a foreshadowing of plundering the Egyptians? Um, with in Genesis in Exodus twelve, when they come out with very great possessions during the Exodus, we're going to get there in just a second. Um, because, which is itself then a foreshadowing of, uh, like, um, is it Isaiah 60 or 61? Um, then the um, kings of the nations bringing their treasures. It's Isaiah 60, the, all the kings of the nations bringing their treasures to the Messiah. Which is then a foreshadowing of the, the wise men bringing their gifts to the king. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. And so on and so forth. All these, you see these typological themes, patterns in Scripture. We're learning about how history works. This, it's this principle, actually, that lies behind um, a, a Christian reading of the Old Testament. A, a Christian reading of the Old Testament is possible because two things. First, it's all one story. So it's our story. It's just an earlier chapter of it. And secondly, because that story has repeating themes that keep emerging. So we can learn about how God will do things in our day from how he's done things in previous eras. If those two things weren't true, then the Old Testament scriptures have nothing to do with us. But those two things are true. And so, yeah, absolutely. And, and what I'm hoping will be a nice side effect of doing these Bible studies in this way is that you'll all start to see more and more of these little patterns or types, typologies in scripture. Yeah. All happy? Okay, so um, just to kind of zoom on a little... Oh, pardon me, did you have your hand up? Okay, I saw you do this, and I I wondered whether that was just you bringing your hand down because you thought the moment had passed. My apologies, all right. So Exodus 2, and and there's a bunch of stuff going on here. We don't want to belabor the point. He uh, he goes to Midian, uh, and um, uh, because he's he's trying to rescue... (laughs) Just a fascinating moment. He's he's trying to rescue um, uh, a... Uh, an, an Israelite from being beaten to death by an Egyptian. So he kills the Egyptian. 
And then the next day he sees two of his own people quarreling and they say, what, you're going to kill us like you killed that guy? And Moses is like, oh my goodness, I've been found out. Everyone's going to know I'm a murderer. So he runs away. But don't you see an eerie foretaste of the whole of Moses' ministry? He's trying to rescue his own people from the Egyptians. As soon as he gets them rescued, they start quarreling among themselves and blaming him. It's like, (laughs) that's exactly what the whole of the book of Numbers is about. And it's right there in Exodus 2. That's Moses, that's your life in a nutshell. Really, you want to go ahead with this? It's like, not really, I'm going to go to Midian. 40 years. Um, So he does. Anyway, um, God's got other plans because Exodus 2, 23. Now this is really important um, for understanding the, the... uh, eschatological structure of covenant theology, right? Exodus 2.23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. Hallelujah. Um, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue came up to God. Now, listen really, really carefully to what happens. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob. Now, just stop for a second. Notice, God remembered. What does that mean? Does it mean that God had forgotten? And he's like, oh, my goodness, I promised to rescue you guys, and there you are, you're stuck in Egypt. Sorry. What does it mean when it says God remembered? You must have heard preachers talk about this before. God remembers. You're being very shy this evening. For God to remember, it's a little bit more like he's going to call to mind and start to act upon. You with me? It's not that he's become cognitively unaware. He's not forgotten. He knows, but he remembers in the sense of, okay, cracks his knuckles, rolls his sleeves up, He calls to mind and gets ready to act upon. And what does he get ready to act upon? What does he remember? Somebody tell me. I'm not going to tell you this time. I'm going to sit here. Sweet Tom. Excellent. He remembers his covenant with Abraham. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, well, we come to the end of that Abraham thing, and clearly that didn't work. We need to start again. What he does is he remembers his covenant in the sense of decides it's time to act on it. And everything that follows from this point on in relationship with Moses is God acting to fulfill his covenant with Abraham. You with me? Right. Now, why is this important? Um... I, I was searching for an illustration, and I've got an illustration of what doesn't happen. So then maybe one of you guys can come up with an illustration of what does. What doesn't happen is covenantal eras are like um, railroad cars going past. There's Adam, and it sort of trundles past. And Adam's then gone, and you've got Noah next. 
and Noah sort of trundles past. And then you've got Abraham, and Abraham sort of trundles past, and then Abraham's gone. And now you've got Moses next, and Moses is going to trundle past. And then after him, you've got David. And, but Adam is long gone. That's how a lot of the time people envisage the shape of biblical history. They think of it as there's Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, something with Nehemiah and I'm not sure what, Jesus, as though they're kind of separate trucks in a railroad train. And they're not. I'm trying to think what's a good illustration that illustrates how they are. Um, have you, has anybody ever iced a cake and you've put two layers of icing on it? You ever done that? That's not going to work then. Okay. Think of a simple way then. Um, paint on a wall. Imagine that what you did was you started painting the wall, and, and I won't use the wall. You started painting at this end, and you're sort of painting, 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 painting. That's Adam. And then what you do is you, you, the Adam bit goes all the way from the beginning, all the way through to the end of history over here. But then about eight chapters in, here's Adam, you start painting Noah, and you paint that all the way through to the end. And then on top of that, you, you paint Abraham, and that goes all the way through to the end. Then on top of that, you paint Moses, and that goes all the way through to the end. And then on top of that, you paint David over here, and that goes all the way through to the end. Now, what you can see is, as you look from left to right, you see Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, something in the days of Nehemiah, Christ. But it's, well, if you scratched below the surface of where it's Moses, if you scratched below there, you'd find the Abraham bit. Are you with me? And if you go below the Abraham bit, you find the Noah bit, and you go behind the Noah bit, and you keep scratching, 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 and you find Adam. They're like layers that lie on top of each other. The crucial point is that when you move from one era to the next, you don't leave behind the previous era. It's there under the surface. And what we've got is now just the next instalment of how all that previous stuff is going to be fulfilled. Are you with me? I hate that illustration. It doesn't work at all. Um, as well as I'd like it to be. Does it work well enough? Yeah, okay, okay. You're being very kind. Um, and, and that's one of the things that emerges from here, because in formal terms, God's covenant with the people of Israel in the days of Moses is how he's going to fulfill his covenant to Abraham. You with me? And so you can easily see what's going to happen. So um, the, the things that are missing at the moment, they've got lots of people, okay, great, but those people are in, in danger. So they're going to need to be rescued from that place where they're in danger. And they're in danger because of a great tyrant, Pharaoh, who is opposed to them. That's the first thing. Second, they're in the wrong place. They need to get out of Egypt, get to the promised land. And thirdly, God isn't really present with them. We learn from the book of Ezekiel later on that actually, the Israelites actually worshipped idols when they were in Egypt. So God's presence is all but unacknowledged by them. So what's he going to do? Well, he's got to rescue these people from this tyrant Pharaoh. And the, uh, the plagues 
that occupy Exodus, well, four, five, six, more or less, six, all the way through to uh, 11 and then 12, are like a kind of battle between the gods, um, in which, yeah, you do start to see um, the, the power of God at work. You see, um, how would you put it? Yeah, you do see an, another side to the way that God fights against evil. Um, and those plagues, we could go into a lot of detail, but we won't do. Um, the purpose of those is that the people of Israel should be liberated from slavery and allowed to worship the true God. Let my people go so they may worship me. That then also starts to accomplish the second thing, a place for them to be, because they're going to be taken out of Egypt and taken towards their own land. But in Exodus chapter 3, you get a a foretaste of the, the third element that God is so determined to establish. Um, in the famous encounter between Moses and the Lord at the burning bush. So let me just uh, read a few bit, few um, verses here, and you'll see what um, I have in mind. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked... And behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, it's a bit weird, I want to go and look at this. And the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, and God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. He said, don't come near, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, reaffirming again this continuity between what he's doing here and what he'd done in the past, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, all those people. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh, and Moses said, that doesn't sound like a good idea. I don't know what I'm doing. And they have this long debate about whether he should go. Okay, we don't need to get into that. Um, look back at the start of that chapter. How did the Lord appear to Moses? It says, in, yeah, in flame of fire, in the midst of a bush. What's the question I'm going to ask you now? Yeah, where else have you seen that before? Now, some of you know, I've taught, taught about this so many times in different, especially with you young people, Bible and theology students. So who can remember? What, why did God not just appear like as a talking rock? Because God is like a rock. Why not have a talking rock? What's special about a bush or a tree and fire? What's going on with that? Beg your pardon? Right. If you allow your sanctified, biblically informed imagination to dwell on the imagery associated with this appearance, you start to see echoes of it throughout the whole of the scriptures. 
Trees are like people, and fire is like the presence of God. Where do you see that? Well, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree. And when that man was halfway healed by Jesus, um, after he was blind, and Jesus healed him, and he, he said, he's only halfway healed, and Jesus said, what do you see? And he said, what? What did he say? I can see men, yeah. I can see men, but they look like trees. And, and I've said this before so many times, but we all think, oh yeah, he was only halfway healed. He obviously couldn't see very well. Oh no. He could see better than we can. In the sense that he could see how the word of God depicts what people are. Trees. Israel is a vine. Psalm 80, Isaiah 5, or a vineyard. And so a tree, and you can see why, a tree becomes a biblical symbol for a person. Look, branches, arms. I look a little bit like a tree, don't I? I mean, not really, but enough that it makes the, the symbolic association plausible. And we know that God is a consuming fire. But it's interesting, the bush isn't consumed. The bush is... It's like the bush has the presence of God within it, but the presence of God isn't destroying the bush, the tree. It's just present within it. Can you see what's, um, how this connects with the, the third aspect of that promise to Abraham? God promised to bless his people. He's promised to be God to them. He's promised to be with them. It's actually what you see um, Jael was thinking about this, I'm sure, because we talked about it very recently in one of her classes. It's what you see at Pentecost, where you've got people burning. That fire is, we're told it's the Spirit appears in flames of fire on each of them. Um, and this encounter, which represents what God is about to do for his people, is then memorialized in architectural form in the tabernacle in the form of a lampstand which is designed to be shaped like a tree and it's perpetually burning with oil that is fed into it through the kind of internal pipes within the lampstand. And so what you're seeing here, just as in chapter 2 you see a, a foretaste of the future of Moses' ministry In chapter 3, you see a foretaste of what God is going to do through Moses' ministry, and he's going to come and dwell among his people. And he does so in the tabernacle. Now, just let's um, zoom forward a little bit. We're skipping through large swathes of the book of Exodus. All the plagues, we're going to go past those. Um, uh, The Exodus itself in... um, Exodus 12, consecration of the firstborn, chapter 13, crossing the Red Sea. Well, now we know about the significance of the crossing of the Red Sea, or no, we don't know all about it. We know a little bit about it. This isn't the first time that a new and wonderful thing has been drawn out of water, is it? Creation, the land appeared from under the water. Noah, 
the land appeared from under the water. Moses himself drawn out from the water. And now the people of Israel are kind of following in the steps of Moses. They're being drawn out of the water of the Red Sea onto dry land. Incidentally, Pharaoh and his army also goes into the Red Sea, but they're drowned in the Red Sea. They go under the water. The people of Israel go through the water. And so if you were then thinking about imagery of washing with water, you might start to say, well, drowning in water, being immersed in water, that looks like a symbol of cursing, destruction, death. Um, Rain falling on you from above or being drawn out of water or through water without being immersed in it, that looks like a symbol of life and cleansing which is one of the reasons for thinking that though baptism by immersion is still baptism, it's not how the New Testament actually envisages that baptism ought to be done. Now, Pastor Neil has spoken about this before. Um, uh, So I don't want to go into it in huge detail now, but just to highlight for you, this is how uh, deeply connected all the details of scriptural history and symbolism are. Even in the the simple fact that, take um, the days of Noah, Um, it was those who were perishing who were immersed in water, it was those who were being saved who simply had rain, water falling on them. Even just in that structure of how the water is, so to speak, applied, is sacramental significance. How ought water to be applied to those who are blessed by God's covenant? Oh, sprinkling, pouring from above. And you find the same thing elsewhere in Scripture. The the Assyrian invasion of Israel and Judah in Isaiah 10, I think it's Isaiah 10, is depicted as a river overflowing its banks and rising right up to your neck so you're going to drown. Yeah? Water that you are immersed in is curse, judgment of God, water. You with me? Okay. So we get all the way through here. Um, We get to the wilderness where they start complaining already. And then we get to Exodus 19. And this brings us to Mount Sinai. So let me have a a look with you at this briefly. Um, On the third new moon, so the third month, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. Israel encamped before the mountain. And why did they camp there? Well, that's where Moses had met God, remember? Chapter 3. Where is he supposed to go back to? Well, um, the Lord says, you're going to worship me at this mountain. So he, he, he thinks, well, that's where I met God. That's where God appeared to me. What am I supposed to do with these Israelites? I guess I'd better take them back there and see if God appears again. And he does. Israel encamped before the mountain, verse 2, while Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, just stop there a second. Um, Let me highlight a few things here. Verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Has the Lord already acted graciously to redeem the people of Israel? Or are they still awaiting their redemption? Have they already been redeemed graciously by God or are they still waiting to be redeemed? Verse 4. You yourselves have seen. I did to the Egyptians. They all perished in the Red Sea. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Yeah, they've been redeemed. Just, just look at the verse 4. Magnificent. I, I've destroyed your enemies. I set you free. Taking you out of Egypt. You're no longer slaves. You're free in the wilderness. And I've, Like an eagle carrying its... It's almost like the thing from the Lord of the Rings, isn't it? I mean, I don't know whether Moses has read Tolkien, but um, maybe it was the other way around. Oh, yeah, because it's a good story. So obviously it's parasitic on biblical themes, because if it's a really good story, it's going to pick up biblical themes. Um, the eagle has carried us, and he's brought us to himself. So where are we now? We're with him. We're with him. Now, therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, question for you. Verse 5. Which covenant? Which covenant? It's quite important, this, because he's just said, if you'll obey my voice and keep my covenant, you'll be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You're gonna, uh, all the earth is mine, and, you, and you're going to be the... the uh, I'll come to this in a minute, maybe, if we have time. You're going to be the nation that is like the whole nation full of priests that reaches out to the nations of the world that all belong to me. But you've got to keep my covenant. Which covenant? Abraham. Abraham. I cannot tell you how important that is. I know, you, you, sometimes pastors and Bible teachers, it's like, what, whatever is he's talking about this week is the most important thing in the world, right? I know, I know, right? <laughs> I used to have a friend, every sermon, it's like, this is so important. I'm like, yeah, I know everything's important. Just preach it, will you? Um, but this is a reference to the covenant with Abraham. What's the covenant with Abraham? This is my covenant, Genesis 17. Every male among you is to be circumcised. Keep the covenant. And, of course, trust me. Yes? Genesis 15. You've got to trust me. Yeah? Trust the Lord. And you've got to apply the sign. And notice, you've already been redeemed. I've just redeemed you from slavery. You're free. You're mine. You belong to me. Now, Just obey my voice, trust me, keep the covenant, apply the sign. That's it. 
It doesn't say, right, I'm about to give you a really long list of laws. If you don't keep them, I'm not going to save you. It doesn't say, here's a big long ladder up to heaven um, with ten massive rungs on each of which is written one of the Ten Commandments and you must clamber up this ladder in order to reach me and then I'll have brought you to myself. I've already brought you to myself. You're mine, you belong to me. Now, obey my voice, keep my covenant. And then you're going to be a, what does it say? My treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. So the the whole earth belongs to me. But if you will just keep my covenant, then what, what that will mean is that you will be this little island of treasured wonderfulness among all the peoples. And you'll be like a like priests to them. You'll be a holy nation. And as we'll see, it'll be next week now. This is how all those nations will be drawn to me. Yes? What follows is not what you all have got to do to get saved. What follows rather is, I've saved you. You belong to me. I love you. You're mine. I'm about to spell out for you in Exodus 20 how you are to obey my voice, yeah? And how to, if you like, how to continue keeping my covenant in this next phase of your existence. But keeping my covenant is not what you need to do in order to attain to the status of belonging to me. You already belong to me. I've emphasized this before. The the relationship between God's grace in setting apart his people for his own, in calling them to himself, on the one hand, and God's moral demands upon us is always and everywhere the same in Scripture, and it is that order. It is never the case anywhere in the Bible that what God says is, here's a bunch of rules you've got to keep. If you keep the rules, then I'll gather you to myself. Rather, he says, I've I've brought you to myself. Now, you want to know how to live and how to enjoy this relationship with me? Let me show you. And the moral requirements of the, I keep using scare quotes for law, for reasons which I'll I'll share with you actually next week now. Um, The moral requirements of the law are how to enjoy that relationship with the living God. That's the order in which moral requirements and God's grace function in Scripture. You with me? Let me pause there just one second because I want to make sure you've sunk in. Any questions about that? Cannot annul the promise, yes. One of my old friends puts it most starkly this way. He says, justification by faith is not the thing that's new in the new covenant. Just let that sink in for a second. Justification by faith is not new. That's as old as Abraham. God's people have always been justified by faith. 
Now, the problem comes in articulating the relationship of that faith to the, and I, I have to use the word law because it's in your English Bibles, but I put it in scare quotes again because law is such an uh, unfortunate and it's a very slanted translation of a much richer Hebrew term here. Um, let's call it teaching. The, the relationship between being adopted as one of God's children and uh, how we receive his teaching is actually much closer to what it would be like for any of you if you ever adopt a child. Uh, maybe one day one or more of you families will adopt a child into your home. I know some people on, who may be on the Zoom have adopted children into their home. And it's a wonderful picture of God's grace. And what you don't say is, okay, you've got to keep a bunch of rules, and if you keep the rules for six months, then we'll adopt you. Or if you keep the rules for 80 years, then we'll adopt you on your deathbed. No, what you do is you adopt the child into your house, into your home, they become part of your family, and then you say, look... Um, We've discovered that the most fruitful and pleasant and joyous way for us to live as a family is to do this. In this way, you will embrace all of the privileges of this relationship into which you've graciously been brought. That is how to understand the, the law which is about to follow, which we're going to begin with next week. And what we're going to do is we'll jump straight into Exodus 20 and we'll start to see how the, these instructions are supposed to function, how they actually function as Israel's um, history unfolds. And you'll start to see some divergence between those two. Um, but even from that divergence, we'll learn a great deal about what God's doing in history. You with me? So we picked up a bunch of different things today. Let me just summarize briefly. So there's, um, for the first time, you see the hostility and opposition that God's promises meet, not just in the people themselves, but in the outside world. And God's sometimes brutal plagues, sometimes hilarious Hebrew midwives, sometimes just plain ironic Moses way of overcoming that opposition. And there's a whole bunch of other things in the Moses narrative um, the people, like Moses himself, are remade. They're newly created. Um, you see hints in the call of Moses at the burning bush of where God's taking them to. He's, he's going to build a place for them where they'll be present with him, tabernacle. And we've just seen the relationship between um, his grace to them and the um, covenant norms or the law that he's about to lay down for them. We'll look at that next time. Okay, we should stop because it's um, just after quarter past. Thank you all for coming and um, let's pray and then we can go. Merciful Father, we're thankful to you again for your grace to us. Thank you for opening wide your arms and um, blessing us as your adopted sons, male and female, in Christ. And we pray that you would 
give us joyful confidence in your conquest of your enemies. Teach us to love that which you love, to uh, stand against that which you hate, uh, to find uh, in ourselves that sin that needs to be rooted out and to resist it. And so to live lives that uh, delight you and bring good to others. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, everybody. Wonderful to see you. I think the Oaks would probably appreciate it very much if we were able to um, arrange the seating in the usual way for them. So if you have a moment and are able to do so, that would be great. Thank you.